We're going to be in 2 Samuel, continuing on, chapter 7. We've done a little bit of jumping around. Uh, did chapters 5 and 8 on Wednesday night, and did part of chapter 5. I don't even know. We're, we're in chapter 7. So open up your Bible there. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to get one off of that, that back shelf back there. Second Samuel 7, situated here. Second Samuel 7, verse 11. Look at verse 11. The latter half of the verse, in fact, the final sentence of the verse, the Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. One more time, to David, the Lord says, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. And so, Lord, would you just now bless the teaching of your word and speak to us, spirit of the living God. Help us to hear you in mind and in heart and to take these truths in. And I pray for the building of your house, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, how's your peace? Do you remember the, the Hebrew phrase? We, we mentioned this, this was a, a few months back, I think. Meshlomcha, to you gentlemen. Meshlomech, uh, to you ladies. It's Hebrew for how's your peace. It's a very common greeting in Israel. Meshlomcha, and, and again, it's how's your peace? There's something that is directly connected to our peace. Peace of heart, peace of mind. I was thinking about what, what Jake shared about Ezra in the backpack last night. And, and, and even thinking as a child to hear that mom and dad are not permanent. What? You know, I mean, it's bad enough my zippered backpack is not permanent. What are you talking about? You are not permanent, dad. And anyone who knows Jake knows he's not permanent. But, <laughs> but there are so many things that we... I'm really hitting you this morning. I love you, man. Have a nice vacation. Um, <laughs> but there are so many things that we hold on to and we cling to, and when they don't work out, we lose peace. We lose peace so quickly. We get sick and we lose our peace. You know, the car breaks down and we lose our peace. Brake job last week, 560 bucks. I lost my peace for a few minutes. You know, it's, it's these things that happen day to day in life. God is so wonderful in that when he brings us his word, he gives us solid things in which to have our peace. So that storms may be raging around us and things may be going wrong in our lives, but, but we have peace. It's a different kind of peace. The Bible says in Psalm 127, verse one, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless, you could, let's, let's, let's like translate it up to, to last night in the Barksdale house. Unless the Lord fixes the backpack. They labor in vain who try to do so. <laughs> he, the, the psalmist makes such a great point. Unless the Lord is the one building your labor's in vain because it's not gonna last. He says, unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. It's vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors, for he gives to his beloved sleep. He gives rest. He gives peace. How's your peace? Any of you this morning laboring in vain as 
David wrote, any of you eating the bread of painful labors, anyone worried or stressed or dealing with conflict or drama or strife, listen to me. God desires peace for you and peace for me this morning. The offer of salvation is an offer of peace then and now. 1 Corinthians 14.33 tells us, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. If there's not peace in it, God's not in it. He's not a God of confusion, but of peace, Paul writes, as in all the churches of the saints. Romans 5.1, therefore, having been justified by faith, that is simply by trusting in him, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the very beginning of faith. He establishes that peace in relationship with him so that then later Paul can write Philippians 4, 6, be anxious for nothing in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I love that. We've talked about it. We have peace with God. Therefore, we receive the peace of God. Mishlomech. Muslim ka, how's your peace? Now for all that, you might say, well, if God is a God of peace and he offers peace with him and through him and in him, we get to have his peace. If that's the case, why is life so adversarial? Why all the conflict? I mean, you know, in the, in the simple, an evening at home and there's conflict between husband and wife. Why if we have the God of peace. There's conflict at work. Why, if we have peace? There's conflict in the world and it ratchets up from there. Well, if he's the God of peace and he offers peace, why all the fighting, why all the war, why all the conflict? And you know, some of it's just us. Some of it's our sin nature, our, our selfishness. We want what we don't have. And so we fight, James tells us. But you know what? There is an adversary who is in large part the answer to the adversarial problems in the world. There is an adversary. There is one stirring it up even when we're not aware of this. Psalm 74 verse 10 says, how long, O God, will the adversary revile and the enemy spurn your name forever? So when the psalmist writes that, clearly he's in a place lacking peace and wondering, will this go on and on and on, this strife and drama and pain? Is this just the way it's gonna be forever? The adversary reviling your name? And I love what Paul says in response to that. Romans 16, verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Listen to that again. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under under your feet. The adversary will be crushed and there will be peace as this world has never known. But peace is always hard fought. It never comes cheap, it never comes free. It's always fought for to this point. It has been one battle after another in the life of David. I would love to have asked David prior to his ascension to the throne, how's your peace? You know, how's your peace, David? What? (laughs) David is finally at peace in his palace as we open up to chapter seven of 2 Samuel. In fact, you could say 2 Samuel 7 plops us down on a couch in the front living room looking out a picture window on a calm morning. 
That's the sense that you get as you read David's peace as he is seated in his palace leads to pondering. His rest to ruminating as he moves room by room through his palace thinking about what he has and and how far he's come and what the Lord has done for him. Looking at the blessings of his house, he's there with a dear friend. Thinking these things through out loud And what comes of David's ponderings, it is perhaps the most significant prophecy in the Bible so far. Now I know, that's what I say about all the prophecies, but they build, they build one upon another. And as we come into chapter seven, truly what the Lord is gonna promise to David is massive in its implications, not only for the chosen ones of Israel, but for the church and for the future, and for what God is doing. I read an article this morning. In fact, let me see if I can just give you the headline because I don't actually have uh, Apple News, therefore I couldn't access it, which is always frustrating. But wait a minute, where is it? There you are, okay. This is, uh, you just hear the headline, and you'll know what I'm talking about. It's It's from the Atlantic, and it's a headline that says, the misunderstood reason millions of Americans stop going to church. I read that and went, well, that's encouraging. I know the article does go on to talk about 40 million Americans have stopped going to church in the last 20 years. It's like, wow, something like 12% of the population, something like that. And, And then, of course, the article stopped because I don't subscribe to Apple News. But Those articles come out all the time. I've used some of those statistics. We've talked about them, and sometimes we we look at that because it's a bit challenging. We need to think through what's going on. But listen, God is building his house. And the numbers may go up and down from our own statistics. I'll tell you what, people are getting saved we don't even know about. Things are going on in this world we're not even aware of. And then you begin to stack up over just since David, 3,000 years of the work of God to building the house of the Lord. I'm telling you, we're gonna be blown away. So I don't fear things like that. I am motivated when I see that people have stopped attending church. It does bring concern to my heart and prayer to my lips. And I do wanna be out saying, hey, look, be involved, connect, come and and listen to the word. If nothing else, come worship the Lord. But he's the one building his house. And so we come to chapter seven of 2 Samuel. This is a chapter every Christian should read and study and know. So if you never have, good news this morning, you're going to. But we should be aware of this. J. Vernon Vernon McGee one time wrote this a while ago. He said, one of the reasons many people find themselves so hopelessly confused in the study of prophecy is because they do not pay attention to this chapter. I love J. Vernon McGee. I'll tell you what, I, I couldn't listen to him. The first time I heard him on radio, I'm like, you've gotta be kidding. This guy's a country bumpkin. What could he possibly know? Well, it's perfect English for Joe. I could continue with this vein of thought, but I'm not going to. We're just gonna let it go. But I love J. Vernon McGee because then I started reading. You know, without the accent, I started reading, and now when I listen to him, I think, this guy is brilliant. I was about to say I've yet to discover that with Joe, but that's not true. That's not true. 
So he says, so few have even read this chapter. And in fact, what's interesting is from here on out, every Hebrew prophet is gonna refer to this. That's how significant this is. As the prophecies to continue to unfold through the scriptures, they will refer back to God's covenant promise made to David right here. For example, Isaiah chapter nine, verse six, refers directly to 2 Samuel chapter seven. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, you know this, Counselor, Mighty, God, Eternal, Father, Prince of Peace, and so often we stop right there because we go, that's a good Christmas verse. What's the next verse say? It says, on the throne of David. Well, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Wait, God promised this to David around 1,000 BC, another 300 years go by, and the promise comes up again through the prophet Isaiah of something that God is going to do. He promises something to David that he is doing, and then through Isaiah says, there's something I am going to do. If you listen to this, Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 24, Ezekiel is in Babylon, in the deportation, in captivity in Babylon, Jeremiah is back in Israel watching it fall apart. Ezekiel from Babylon hears this, my servant David will be king over them. Okay, this is around 586 BC. 500 years ago, how, how is David gonna be king over them? This is God's promise and they will all have one shepherd and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them they will live on the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant. How's that for peace when you're in Babylon? They will live on the land. It says, in which your fathers lived, they will live on it, they and their sons and their sons' sons forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant covenant with them and I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst and he says this again forever my dwelling place also will be with them and I will be their God and they will be my people and the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever promise made to a people in captivity, Daniel chapter two, verse 44 says, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. That prophecy is given to Daniel who, by the way, was also in Babylon, but toward the end of that Babylonian deportation. And then after that, Zechariah, about 400 years before Jesus, wrote this down. The Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one and his name the only one. Prophecy after prophecy after prophecy in the Bible refers back to 2 Samuel chapter seven. That makes it one of the most highly significant chapters in the entire Bible. It is called the Davidic covenant. 
the covenant promise that God makes to David that then he's going to build on. In fact, he'll bring the new covenant and the new covenant is actually established on the foundation of the covenant of David, the Davidic covenant. It is the promise of a house forever given to David, fulfilled in Jesus, realized by you and me if we'll have this house, if we'll receive this house. So let's look at it. Chapter seven, verse one. It came about when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies. Now, I'll tell you real quickly, one of the challenges, and there are several in 2 Samuel as as a book that, that have been brought up, you know, language challenges and chronology challenges. In fact, the chronological challenge we see right here because it tells us at the beginning of chapter seven that the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies, but then chapter eight, we discover, in fact, if you look at chapter eight, verse 15, it says, so David reigned over all Israel and administered justice and righteousness for all his people, but chapter eight is all about David uh, expanding those borders. So in chapter seven, we're told he's given rest from all his enemies, but chapter eight, we see him fighting all his enemies in every direction. So some think maybe the author's placement of chapter seven is more literary than it is chronological. It's true, but things may not flow exactly as we read them straight through when we're in this part of, of 2 Samuel because again, the author, the Holy Spirit, is making a point, is clarifying things. So chapter seven, we see him at rest, but chapter eight, he's still fighting for the rest that we see in chapter seven. Something that, well, maybe the Holy Spirit just couldn't wait to share it, so chapter seven showed up first. <laughs> In any case, it's inspired. And the promise to David, note this, the promise to David comes when he is at rest. When he's at rest, that is, that's significant. The king said to Natan the prophet, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar. But the ark of God dwells within tent curtains. So finally, there's a pause in David's life. There's, there's, there's a, a, a relaxing of things. And as he's restful, he begins to think. He already brought the ark up to Jerusalem. He has it in a tabernacle. This, by the way, is not the original tabernacle. This is what we would call David's tabernacle. No doubt constructed to the exact precise design of the tabernacle as given to Moses, but now David has constructed a tent that is in the city of David, and he brought the Ark of the Covenant, and it is in that tent, but he's still looking at it saying, that's a tent, and I'm in a palace. That's upside down. God should have the palace, and me in the tent. And he's thinking about all these things as he looks around. You know, battles are good for us. They make us run to and rely upon the Lord. They are good for us. They strengthen us. They give us endurance and, and wherewithal. But rest strengthens your faith. Times of rest are where our faith can settle and solidify. It's kind of like a workout, you know? You'll go to the gym. I know this because I used to. This was years ago. Uh, you go to the gym and, and you'll work out and you will tax certain muscle groups but it's in the rest that follows that the muscles will settle into that strength. 
If all you do is work the muscles out and give it no rest, the muscles have no time to settle. And that is part of the process. That's why, you know, people will say, if you're going to the gym, go three days a week. So you have the in-between for your body to settle into this, this stress that you're putting it through on the other days. Think about this. What do you do on vacation? What do you do on vacation? How's your rest? How's your peace? Lesson I have talked about this many times. It takes a good week for me just to dial down. And why, why do you take more than a week of vacation at, at time? Because I, I need a week just to settle my brain and get to the place where I am resting and hearing the Lord and at peace so that then I can hear better. And that's so much the way it is. God says, Psalm 46, 10, cease striving and know that I am God. And it's not simply a prescription, cease driving and know, it's cease driving and know that I am God. You will know better the authority of God and the power of God over your life when you're not striving. And in fact, Isaiah 30, verse 15, both of these verses we repeat all the time, in repentance and rest, you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength. Do you have those times in your life? Do you carve out those times? See, the Jews had Shabbat. They had the day of rest, one day a week, and it wasn't about being so legalistic it stressed you out. It was about taking the day and recognizing the Lord every week. Do you have a day like that? Do you have a time that's carved out for you and the Lord? Maybe morning devotions or evening devotions or time where it's just everything stops and you, and you get on your knees before him or you open the word or you listen to some worship and you just rest in the Lord? See, David here is resting on every side. And as he looks about his palatial estate, he's thinking about these things. By the way, his estate was, by all accounts, opulent. Don't think of, of a rugged palace here. I, I recently mentioned um, the Israeli archaeologist Elat Matzar, uh, and she was very famous. She died just a couple of years ago, uh, got, got disease. She was only in her, in her 60s, which, as far as I'm concerned, is extremely young. And uh, back in 2005, this is how recent this was, they were, they were digging around what they thought might be the city of David and, and, and making headway there. And she said, I know where David's palace is. And they said, okay, she's cute, but come on. What do you mean, you know where David, she said, dig right here. And they actually had a gift shop there. And, uh, and it was kind of a gift shop and headquarters for the dig at the city of David. And she said, it's right under the gift shop, I, I guarantee it. Well, she had enough clout that they believed her and they began to dig. But before that, they asked her, how do you know? How do you know David's palace will be found here if we dig here? And she pulled out a capital. Not like a capital city, a capital with an A. I'm talking about the ornate top of a pillar a carved ornate top of a pillar. She showed them this capital and she said, this is of Phoenician design. So, who cares if it's of Phoenician design? How does that prove the palace of David? And she said, and I quote, if you knew your Bible like I know my Bible, you wouldn't have to ask. The Bible is the best friend of a true archeologist. And she took them to 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 11, which reads, Hiram, the king of Tyre, sent messengers to David with cedar trees and carpenters and stone masons, and they built a house 
for David. David's palace was built by Hiram, king of Tyre. So what? So Tyre was the capital city of Phoenicia. This Phoenician capital would have built by a Phoenician. There were no Phoenicians down there 3,000 years ago in this area. No, David was there, but there was a Phoenician capital which you would have put on a palace. And she said, this proves it right here because the Bible said this was built by a Phoenician. This was an opulent palace, beautiful, stunning in its day. Josephus, by the way, indicates that David's wealth would outpass a Gates, a Musk, or a Bezos easily today. That David's wealth at this time would have been the, the, the uh, comparison to billions today. So this was a beautiful house, and he's looking at it, and he's thinking about his current Dwelling as compared to the dwelling of the Lord. He's looking at the two. He's thinking of, an, from an earthly perspective, he's looking at the tent uh, of, the t- uh, uh, you know, of the tabernacle of the Ark of the Covenant, and he's thinking of that, about that as a dwelling for God. And, and he says, man, I wanna do better. I love this about David. I wanna do better for the Lord than the Lord has done for me. You ever think that way? I wanna do something better for the Lord than what he's done for me. Now, obviously, we can't even begin to outgive God, but think about, as we read through this now, how do you respond to his blessings? Are you the person going, well, I don't know, my, my life's pretty tough. I don't think I've been really very well taken care of, Lord. Have you stopped and thought about simply the blessings of God in your life and, and, and responded in kind You want the peace that I began talking about a few minutes ago? Starts with thanksgiving. A thankfulness for the blessings, responding to God. Well, let's go on. Notice who David is hanging with. This is a dear friend, spiritual advisor, and the most important prophet of David's day. And it's the first time we meet him. His name is Natan. He's there with Natan the prophet. He's speaking with Natan. David is going to name one of his sons after him. In fact, a son who stands in the direct biological lineage of Jesus, according to Luke chapter three. Natan's name means to give or to give place to. And so David is talking with him and he says, look at this house I'm in and where the ark of God is. Verse three, Natan said to the Lord, or, or sorry, said to the king, Go, do all that is in your mind, for the Lord is with you. So two friends having a great conversation, and Natan says, well, sounds great. The Lord is with you. Go for it. Now, he's a prophet, but he's a bit presumptuous. The Lord is with David, and perhaps that's what he's thinking. I mean, this is not a false prophecy here when he says, do all that is in your heart. I mean, who can blame him? God had obviously been with David. The Lord was clearly with David. He had peace on every side. And so Natan's saying, this is is a good time. God is with you. Do what's in your heart. Of course he would want you to do this. Even prophets need to remember the value of the insight of inquiry. We talked about Wednesday night. We talked about it last Sunday the insight of inquiry, you may be prophetically gifted. That does not mean you don't stop and bring it to the Lord. That you don't ask the Lord for his insight, for his direction. Now again, this is not a prophetic word. Go do all that is in your mind. It is really more of a friend's encouragement. 
Natan is saying, hey, yeah, this, this sounds great. Let me just insert this right here. You need to be careful because even, even the advice of a dear friend can mislead. Don't base your decisions, especially spiritual decisions, only on the advice of your human friends who have lived no more life than you have. Go to the Lord. Take it to him. Because a good thing, where's Jim? There you are. A good thing is not necessarily a God thing. There are a lot of good things that we can do in our lives that we take hold of in our lives that may not be a God thing. The God thing may be something completely different. And so Natan gives advice, but the Lord now is gonna have to come to Natan and dial him back, verse four. In the same night, the word of the Lord came to Natan saying, go and say to my servant David, thus says the Lord, are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt. Even to this day, I have been moving about in a tent, even in a tabernacle. Wherever I have gone with all the sons of Israel, did I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel, which I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? I've been in a tent, I've been in a tabernacle. You know what that is? Two tents. So if you're two tents this morning, please listen. Why have you not built me a house? God says, have I ever said that? When have I ever made that statement? Now the Lord is going to allow a temple to be built. Solomon will build the first temple, obviously. But you gotta recognize, even for the building of a temple or perhaps a church building, God's word is absolutely consistent. First Kings chapter eight, verse 27, Solomon, upon completion of the temple, says, will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house which I have built. The house was simply a symbol of location. The house was simply a place for the people to come and pause and recognize their relationship to God. Isaiah 66 verse one, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. The Lord spoke to Jeremiah. This was a big issue for Israel. The house of the Lord, they were so into the temple, they were so assured of the existence of the temple that they believed nothing could happen to them. Even as Babylon was all around the city of Jerusalem, they looked at the temple. Some of you have seen the burnt house in Israel. It's a house that was discovered. They dug down, it's underground even to this day. You have to go down steps to go into it. And they do a whole uh, media presentation down there of this house of a priest, the Catharos house, that they discovered all burned out and destroyed. They found the forearm of a young girl in that house next to a Roman sword. I mean, this was happening in 70 AD. 
But the people in 70 AD and the people in 586 BC, the same thing, they're saying the temple's here, as long as the temple is here. So the Lord speaks to Jeremiah in Jerusalem at the time, right around 586 to 600, somewhere in there BC. He says, stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah who enter by these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words saying, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly practice justice between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the orphan, the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, nor walk after other gods to your own ruin, then I'll let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. The prophets in Jeremiah's day were false. They were saying, the temple stands, therefore we stand. And God is saying, nope. You only stand if you trust in me. You only stand if you follow me. All the way over in the New Testament, Acts chapter seven, verse 48, Stephen said that the most high does not dwell in houses made by human hands. He is not so limited. Acts chapter 17, verse 24, Paul said up on Mars Hill, he said, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. And of course, the Greeks had temples for every God all over the place. So, so the Lord is speaking through Natan, tells Natan, you gotta go back and talk to David because I don't dwell in a house made by man. You could say God apparently likes camping out. I was fine, I'm fine in the tabernacle. This is good, that, that movable tent. In fact, in verse six again, he says, I have been moving about in a tent, even a tabernacle. Why would God like that? Because it was mobile. Because it was central to his people wherever they went. As they marched through the wilderness, wherever they stopped, the tabernacle was dead center to his people. That's where God wanted to be. That's where he wanted his presence to be known, right at the heart of the people, but also, you Bible students know that the tabernacle spoke of another dwelling. John 1:14, the word became flesh and dwelt, that is, tabernacled among us. We saw his glory, glorious of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus tabernacled among us. He didn't have a house. He didn't come dwell in an opulent palace when he came in the first coming, he slept out under the stars. He moved about freely among the people. That's the heart of God. Now, I don't think David or Natan could have imagined what would follow the coming of Jesus. Something even more remarkable that, that he tabernacled among us. No, Jesus said in John 14, 23, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. That is so mind-blowing, so you know, accepted among Christians, but so mind-blowing for Jesus to say that in the day, that if you trust in me, if you come to me, if you keep my word, he says, we're gonna come dwell in you. You will be the house of the Lord. You will be the tent. And as you go, so I will go. That really ought to challenge the comforts of home that we so easily idolize. 
Paul said in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 16, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? We are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. We make idols out of so many things and the Lord's saying, look, I'm, I'm here. I'm dwelling in you. You're the temple now. Well, going back, watch how the Lord develops all of this as he sends Natan back to David with this profound word, verse eight. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. I'll give you a bunch of things to jot down and we're gonna hit these fast in order. Number one, his purpose in calling David in the first place. His purpose in calling David. Why did God choose David? Why did God call David? Because God wanted his king to be a shepherd. He wanted someone with the mentality of a shepherd to shepherd his people Israel. So he called David from the pasture to be a pastor. <laughs> this is what God did. I want a shepherd's heart on the throne. Saul did not have a shepherd's heart. David did. A shepherd boy at the beginning, raised in Bethlehem, ultimately coming to the throne and having that shepherd mentality over the people of Israel. Does that remind you of another shepherd? See, God wants a shepherd ruler. Matthew 9.36 tells us that seeing the people Jesus felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. The good shepherd, John chapter 10, he says, I am the good shepherd. So David is even a picture and type of the shepherd ruler to come, but God called David because his purpose was to have a shepherd ruler. Number two, not only his purpose in calling David, but his presence with David. Verse nine continues, I have been with you wherever you have gone. And David knows this. Amazing, because God had said, I will meet you above the mercy seat in the tabernacle. But the ark and the tabernacle were disparate from each other, were separate. And David was on the run from Saul. And yet, even up in the caves of Engedi or Adullam, David knew the presence of the Lord. He knew God was with him. That, back then, that is truly remarkable. Now, we have been taught and we have this understanding, maybe we're not always aware of God's presence, but he is always present with his people. And yet, David knew somehow, and so God reminds him of his purpose and his presence. Number three, his power for David. As verse nine continues, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. You didn't do that, David. I did that. That was me. It was because of God's power that David is standing, that David rose to the throne at all, that David now has subdued all his enemies, north, south, east, west, like we looked at Wednesday night. David now is at rest because God was with him. God constantly went before him. Chapter uh, eight, verse 16, note this. At the end of verse 16, or sorry, verse six of chapter eight, the Lord helped David wherever he went. And down in verse 14, the Lord helped David wherever he went. We saw Wednesday night that that word helped is yesha, saved. It's the same, it's the root word of Yeshua. The Lord saved David, the Lord was with David, the Lord's power was for David wherever he went. 
And so the Lord is now, through Natan, reminding David of all of this. This is foundational now because here comes a word from the Lord. He begins to unfold, number four, his plan through David. Purpose in calling David, presence with David, power for David, and now his plan through David. Verse nine, continuing, and I will make you a great name. Like the names of the great men who are on the earth. A prestige for David. Now, I'm gonna come back to the plan, but just stay with me here. Number five, a prestige for David. Who has not heard the name David? Even those who don't know the root of, the, of, of David, and I'm talking about both the name and the actual root, but people who aren't aware, where does the name David even come from? It comes from David. He is the only one named David in the Bible. He's the first that we see named in this way. His name, his greatness, here we are 3,000 years later. And I have a son named David. And some of you have friends and sons and fathers and, and, and family named David. Why? Because of David, the prestige. God says, I'm gonna make your name great. Everybody knows the name David now. And most people have heard at least something of David and Goliath. Something of the life of King David, that, that king of Israel, the house of David inscribed on that stone found up at Tel Dan. Most people, even in our country where 40 million less people attend church now, oh no, we better shrink back on that one. Even in this country today, most people have some idea that there was a David who was a king, a giant killer, a famous dude. David. I hope you see Jesus, by the way, in all of this. Because his purpose is a shepherd king. His presence, Emmanuel, God with us. His power, the power of the Lord in David. Same as the power of the Lord in Jesus, Psalm 110, verse one, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's my power going before you. His plan has always been about Jesus and this prestige now, the name of David. I'm gonna make a name for you, David. Hey, there's a greater name, a greater than David. Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. The name of Jesus. So we see Jesus portrayed here throughout all of this, but, but keep going. Back to the plan now through David, verse 10. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them that they may live in their own place, and note this, and not be disturbed again. Nor will the wicked afflict them anymore as formerly. My friends, this is future prophecy. Because it's after this, it's 500 years after this that Judah will fall and be taken into captivity. They'll return a first time. But another 500 years after that, and Israel will fall again. And the second full return is yet promised. That's in Isaiah 11. But this plan is a forever plan. It speaks of the future. Verse 11, even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Is Israel at rest from all their enemies right now? No. I will do this. This promise of the Lord, again, and I keep repeating this, but 
get it, 3,000 years ago, is coming to fruition before our eyes, is being fulfilled and will be completely and perfectly fulfilled. Number six, if you're with me so far, a peaceful planting of his people. A peaceful planting. See, this promise demands future fulfillment. A time when they will be planted in peace, rooted in peace, never again to be uprooted. That's what needs to be understood here because there were peaceful times in the history of Israel, but they have been uprooted twice. And the Lord says it will, at this point, never happen again. And so anyone who thinks that the church has replaced Israel or that Christianity is the kingdom that is being promised here, you haven't read this chapter. You don't understand that God must keep his forever promise to his chosen people, Israel, or God doesn't keep his promises. And that's a big deal. Because if God doesn't keep all of his promises, every single one to everybody that he has made unconditionally, why should he keep any promise to you or to me? Why would we trust him at all if he's a breaker of promises, but he's not, he is a promise keeper. And in this promise to David, this is laid out before us, and then we finally, we come to the heart of the covenant promise. At the end of verse 11, the Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. Natan comes back to David there in the palace, and he says, God's gonna build you a house, and he looks around. What? Hiram built me a house. Look at the capital. Hiram did. That. I have a. What I don't need. I have a palatial estate here. But the Lord will make a house for you, and He's not talking about the building. He's talking about a dynasty, and not just any dynasty. What is described here is greater than any dynasty in all human history this peaceful planting for Israel, this plan, this prestige, this power and presence and purpose all coming together now with a promised seed. Seed of a dynasty, a promised seed. That's number seven. Look at verse 12. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your seed after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. People say, oh oh yeah, that's Solomon, right? No. Partially? In type? Because the Lord does raise up a son after David, Solomon, who rises to the throne, Shlomo, whose name means peace. And he does raise him up and Solomon does build the first temple of the Lord. The problem is the word forever. Kingdom of Solomon was not forever. In fact, his own son Rehoboam would be part and parcel of the splitting of the kingdom. This was not a kingdom forever. It was not a kingdom that lasted. Even the temple, the house that Solomon built only lasted from about 900 to 500, 586. So this is not a forever it's either the promise failed or, or this is not about Solomon. 
Matthew chapter 12, verse 42, Jesus says, you know, the queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The prophetic promise is not about Solomon. The dynasty is not looking to Solomon to maintain the descendant, the Zara in Hebrew, the seed, the offspring, the posterity. Hey, Solomon is at best a shadowy representation, at best. The greater than Solomon Messiah, this is the seed about which is being prophesied right here. This is immediate in part, but it is distant in fulfillment. So again, Solomon will continue the dynasty for now. He'll build the first house, the temple, but another will do far more. The prophet Zechariah comes along about 480 years or so before Jesus. In Zechariah chapter six, verse 12, then say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is and he will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, he will build the temple of the Lord. He who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne and thus he will be a priest on his throne and the council of peace will be between the two offices. That is of priest and of king. This is speaking of Messiah to come who is the one who builds the house of the Lord. And Solomon, he'll, he'll have a throne but again, this throne is described as forever. You realize that there has not been a throne, a, a king that is, a king on the throne of David since the days of Jeconiah who got that line cursed. And we talked about this, the line of Solomon. So going down from David to Solomon and every person all the way down to Jesus, do you realize that lineage is cursed? No one of that line can sit on the throne. What about Jesus? Well, that lineage through Jeconiah and his, his idiot brother Zedekiah, who was a puppet to the king, that line lands us at Joseph. It's the legal line to Messiah. Joseph was not Jesus' biological father. There's another line that runs through David's son, Natan, that is not cursed. And it arrives, Luke chapter three, at Mary. And, David, and Jesus is born of Mary. So biologically, God bypasses the curse. Anyway, that's a whole, a whole teaching in and of itself. But what I'm saying to you is this seed, this promised seed is not Solomon. It is absolutely Jesus. Look at verse 14. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. Oh, I mean, that's beautiful. Sure, at first, God will be like a father to Solomon, but Solomon's gonna turn away from the Lord in the latter days of his life because of all his wives and their idols. In fact, I've said this before, and I hope I'm wrong, but I don't know if we will see Solomon in heaven. Perhaps, perhaps by the grace of God, but the last we hear of Solomon, he is no longer following the Lord. It is more likely that you'll see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven than Solomon because at the end of Nebuchadnezzar's messed up life, he declares the lordship of the father. So I don't know how that's gonna shake out. I hope we see them both, to be honest. But God is a father like no other to Jesus. There is no son of God like Jesus. John three sixteen. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten 
son. And don't let people mess with you on the translation there. Only begotten means absolutely unique, one and only, no one like him, son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. John 3, 35, the father loves the son and has given all things into his hand, Jesus says. He who believes in the son has eternal life. He who does not obey the son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. The father-son relationship of Jesus and God is unmistakable, Yahweh and Yeshua in absolute perfect unity and oneness with the Holy Spirit, Jesus the Son of God. I will be a father to him, he will be, like, he will be a son to me, the Lord says. Jesus even went so far in John 10 verse 30 to say I and the Father are one, we are one. Verse 14 continuing. And when he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. Whoa, okay, there's the problem. Sounded good so far, Rick. I mean, you almost had us buying that this is about Jesus and not Solomon. And then we get to that line. When he commits iniquity, then I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the son of men. Can't be Jesus. When he commits iniquity, come on. You know what? And jot this down if you're a note taker. This verse actually cements the fact that it's Jesus. This, more than anything else we've read so far, seals the deal that the seed prophesied about here in the house of David must be Jesus Christ. How is that the case? Because this verse can also read, let me read it as written here in the NASB, when he commits iniquity, I will correct him. It can also read very clearly when iniquity is committed to him. When iniquity is committed to him. It's not when he commits sin, I will correct him with the rod. It's when sin, our sin, is committed to him. That speaks of nobody but Jesus. Isaiah 53, verse four, surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. What Isaiah prophesies there is that Jesus took all of our sin on himself, but when we saw this, when we looked at him at the cross, we said, wow, he must be a filthy sinner or he wouldn't be there. And in that moment, he was soaked in our sin. He was pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging, we are healed. And Paul pushes it even more, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He made him who knew no sin, sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him when he commits iniquity, or when iniquity is committed to him, I will correct him with the rod of men, with the strokes of the sons of men, as the nails went through his hands and feet, and he was lifted up on the cross. We esteemed him smitten of God. Exactly what the prophecy says. But, verse 15, my loving kindness, my chesed, shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. My loving kindness shall not depart. Literally, my grace. Jesus is the securing grace of the Davidic covenant. It is in Jesus that this covenant is completed and fulfilled, and it's his blood that seals the promise. 
Again, as I said, after David, it's only gonna take one generation for the kingdom of Israel to split. After that, king after king in the kingdom of Israel and in the southern kingdom of Judah, we'll see these kings, Lord willing, one after another, failing, even among the good ones, failing to maintain peace. The promises of peace here in the house of the Lord, the house of David, the house that he's gonna build, the Davidic covenant, I'm gonna do all of this, and yet after Solomon, we see it fail, utterly fail. Isn't that just like us? We have the perfect promises of God and still we strive. We're invited into the house of peace, but instead we seem to love drama. What is wrong with us? And don't miss what God has just done here. This is awesome, think about this with me. He stares down the three greatest threats or contentions to the kingdom. In verses 12 and 13, look back at it. When your days are completed and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant. Guess what? Death cannot annul this covenant. Death cannot annul it. David, you're gonna die. The covenant goes on. Verses 14 and 15, again, I will be a father to him, he'll be a son to me. And when iniquity is committed to him, I will correct him with the rod of men. Hey, guess what? Sin cannot destroy it. Death cannot annul it. Sin cannot destroy it. Look at verse 16. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Guess what? Time cannot exhaust it. This is a forever promise. That death cannot annul, sin cannot destroy, and time cannot exhaust. It's that word forever that just sticks out. It's a, a phrase, actually, a two-word phrase in the Hebrew that is used once in verse 13. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Twice in verse 16, your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Listen, the Lord's repeating himself to get this through our thick skulls. Forever, forever, forever. It's going to be echoed another five times in the response of David. He'll say forever, forever, forever. Forever is adolam. Adolam, which is until everlasting or to everlasting. It is a phrase that can mean nothing else but forever. And so in 2 Samuel 7, that two-word Hebrew phrase translated into the word forever is used eight times times, and eight is the number of new beginnings in the Bible. Promise fulfilled, the covenant of David is a promise of new beginnings, of a kingdom to come that is an eternal kingdom. A promise of new beginnings, think of it this way, if the earth has been here 6,000 years, and I believe it has, and we're looking, staring down the 7,000 year of the millennial kingdom, what is number eight? New heaven, new Jerusalem, new earth, on into forever, new beginnings. Forever, 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 forever. Eight times in this chapter, he is talking about the house that Jesus built and is building. Micah chapter five, verse four, he will arise, that is the Messiah, Jesus, and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God and they will remain because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. This one will be our, fill it in. 
Anyone know? This one will be our? <laughs> you need to learn the verse. Peace. This one will be our peace. Jesus will be our peace. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is your peace this morning. In this life, at this time, right here, right now, and he will be our peace in forever to come. Verse 17, in accordance with all these words and all this vision, so Natan spoke to David. And then David the king went in and sat before the Lord and he said, who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me this far? I love the humility of David. For the sin and the messes of David and some of the worst is yet to come in this book. He is a humble man. And here he is, he is speaking the same thing that he said back in uh, the eighth Psalm, probably written as a young man, who am I? He's king over all Israel. He has subdued all the nations around. Who am I, Lord, that I should receive this promise that you have brought me thus far? Who am I? Lord, ever feel that way, by the way? You ever sit on a Sunday morning or maybe just alone in your house, sitting there, feeling, I don't know, insignificant, asking the question in all honesty in your heart, why would God ever care about me? Why, why would God ever even take notice of me? Let me give you a little hint. It's not because of you. Isn't that great news? It is not because of you that God takes notice of you. It's because of him. It's because of who he is, trust in that. Verse 19, and David says, and yet this was insignificant in your eyes, O Lord God. For you have spoken also of the house of your servant concerning the distant future, and, and this is the custom of man, O Lord God. What does that mean? This is the custom of man. What, what are you talking about, David? Literally, he says, this is the Torah, the Torah of man, he says, this is a teaching for all people all the way out to the distant future. What is the grace of God forever? The grace of God is forever. The house of David, by the grace of God, the loving kindness, the chesed, it's, it's eternal. This is forever. Romans 5.20 says, the law came in so that transgression would increase. That is so we would be even more aware of our sin. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin increased in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And David is saying, this whole thing, my house, me, I, this, I'm insignificant compared to this promise that is yet future of your grace. He is blown away, verse 20. And what more can David say to you? For you know, that you know your servant, O Lord God, for the sake of your word and according to your own heart, you have done all this greatness to let your servant know. For this reason, you are great, O Lord God. There is none like you. There is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And what one nation on the earth is like your people Israel? Which we could still say that today, by the way. Small nation comparatively, a small people group compared to many other nations, and yet, who's like Israel? There is no nation like Israel. There is no nation as ancient, 
There is no nation as chosen. There is no nation as, as maligned and belittled and disparaged. There is no nation as brilliant. I could go on and on. There is still no, no nation like Israel whom God went to redeem for himself, verse 23 continues, as a people and to make a name for himself and to do great, a great thing for you and awesome things for your land before your people whom you have redeemed for yourself from Egypt, from nations and their gods, for you have established for yourself. Are you picking up what David's putting down? God's, this is all about God. It's not even about this amazing people, Israel. This is all for and about and to God the Father. You've established for yourself, verse 24, your people, Israel, as your own people forever, and you, O Lord God, have become their God. Now, therefore, O Lord God, the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and his house, confirm forever and do as you have spoken. As David prays this, this wonderful prayer, responding to God's grace, he does what all good praying should come to. Here in verse 25, he aligns himself with the heart of God. He is thankful, he is worshipful, he is praising God, and then he says, confirm your word. I'm with you, I stand with you. Confirm it, Lord. Make it so. Confirm your word forever. That is a good place to go in prayer. You're thankful, you're praying, maybe you're bringing prayers and petitions and requests before the Lord, but before you're done praying, Lord, confirm your word. Make it so. In fact, you realize that's what we mean when we say amen? Amen is not like saying sincerely. You know, in Jesus' name, sincerely, Rick. Amen is so be it. It's confirm the word that you have spoken to your servants. Verse 26, that your name may be magnified forever. That's why, not me, David says, you. By saying the Lord of hosts is God over Israel and may the house of your servant David be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made a revelation. I like this phrase, made a revelation. Literally, you have uncovered the ear. You've uncovered the ear to your servant saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Now, O Lord God, you are God and your words are truth and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant that it may continue Adolam forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken and with your blessing, may the house of your servant be blessed forever. What a response to this covenant of grace and peace, the Davidic covenant. In Jesus, we're adopted into this, grafted in, as Paul says in Romans 11. We become part of it. We join in this promise. We don't conscript it. We don't take it away. We don't replace. We come along. We join into it. And even in our joining, Paul says in Romans 11, so that Israel may be made jealous and come back to the Lord, and they will. And that's the promise. As a nation, there's going to be this Great return. God's doing this. 
And so we come, we're adopted into it, into, listen, into his house of peace. That's this forever promise. Isaiah 26, verse three, you will keep him in perfect peace. Shalom, shalom, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts you. The question I asked on Friday night, we were talking about the first sighting of the new moon is the blowing of the trumpet for Yom Teruah. And here we are and it's Sunday and a couple of days have gone by and the rapture did not happen. I have proof we're here. But, but that sighting of the new moon was a sighting of the first sliver. Realize the, the new moon, as we talked about Friday, is not the full moon. It's not like a harvest moon. It's a sliver. The first time they see the sliver, that's when they know it's Yom Teruah and they blow the trumpet. It's that much faith God is asking of you. A sliver of faith. Just, just enough will you trust in the Lord. If you trust in the Lord, you will have peace now. And then, and it doesn't take great faith and massive trust. You don't have to be C.H. Spurgeon or D.L. Moody or one of the great fathers, Tertullian or Papias or, or Paul or Peter or John. You don't have to be any, just trust with a sliver. Because in that trust, in that faith comes perfect peace. So gentlemen, mishlomcha. Ladies, mishlomach, how is your peace this morning. Aren't you tired of struggling and striving? You ever get tired of the day-to-day, you know, ins and outs and exhaustion of living paycheck to paycheck and, and pain to pain and fight to fight? God wants peace. He offers peace to you and to me. And nothing, not death, not sin, and the expanse of time can stop it if you will just receive it. So my final question to you this morning is how are you going to respond to the offer of the peace of God? Have you responded? Have you responded to the peace of God? Will you respond this morning? Hebrews 13, verse 20, now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, Jesus our Lord, equip you with every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever, amen. Let's pray. Father, your word is astounding. Truly awesome, Lord, for us to reconsider now this covenant made to David, the promises to be realized in the grace and truth of Jesus Christ, the root and the descendant of David. Oh Lord, we praise your name. What an awesome plan. And to see it unfolded before us in such clarity, Lord, thank you for this word. And I pray that you will establish our faith, that, that you would literally, Father, take our faith from a little sliver to a full moon, that, that, that we will have big faith and huge trust in you from that tiny little beginning of trust. Father, this week, my prayer for our fellowship is you will help us to absolutely believe in spite of anything we see going on in our families, in our friendships, in the world around us, to absolutely believe that you are bringing this kingdom promise to completion in Jesus Christ. 
And Father, I pray for peace for my brothers and my sisters, for myself, the peace that surpasses all comprehension will guard our hearts and, and our minds in Christ Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 